Well, tonight is Maundy Thursday. We celebrate Maundy Thursday. The day takes its name from the Latin for word, the Latin word for commandment. Maundy Thursday is Commandment Thursday because on this night, the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, as we just read, gave the disciples a new commandment. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And Maundy Thursday is always a communion service as well. And this is because on this same evening, in the context of giving the new commandment, Jesus left us with, or he instituted, we say, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. It's a deceptively simple affair, that table. It would seem like there's maybe not that much to it. And yet the church has been unable to plumb its depths or exhaust its riches, its simple glory, or unravel its mystery. Nevertheless, in all times, in all times and in all places, the church has drawn life, right? Sustenance, hope, and correction from that sacrament. Our reading tonight from 1 Corinthians 11 comes, in fact, in the middle of an extended piece of correction from Paul on the abuse of the supper in the Corinthian church. There at Corinth, at their fellowship meals, the rich were not waiting for the poor. Some ate and drank to excess. Others had nothing. And the apostle is appalled by this. And then in verses 23 through 26, the first part of our text, Again, the text is on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. In the first part of our text, the apostle moves from the specific Corinthian abuse to the general case of administering the supper. Of course, he's also addressing the Corinthian abuse, but he is speaking more generally and more broadly here. We know this, right? We know this because verses 23 through 26 are simply Paul's restatement of Jesus' words of institution on the night he was betrayed. Right? On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. And then, of course, the same thing for the cup. We call those words the words of institution. Right? The words by which Jesus instituted the sacrament. So, when you go back to the words of institution... You are now addressing not just the Corinthian abuse, but every celebration of the Lord's Supper everywhere. Those words govern every celebration of Holy Communion. John Calvin, for example, recognizes this when he says, Paul has passed from the particular case to the general statement. There was one fault which prevailed among the Corinthians... He takes occasion from this to speak of every kind of faulty administration of the Lord's Supper. That's the end end of Calvin. So, when we look at what happens in our text here, we are asking what it means for us, for all, every time anyone celebrates the Supper. 
Right? So we can't read 1 Corinthians 11 and say, well, that only applies to the Corinthian abuse. So, so with that, I'm going to make three points from verses 27 through 32. They're called Examine, Discern, and Judge. It's the title of the sermon. Examine, Discern, and Judge. <laughs> so Paul first cites the words of institution from the night Jesus was betrayed. And then the next thing he says is, whoever therefore. So what he's about to say, it's crucial to get this, right? What he's about to say follows directly from the words of institution. So far, so good, I hope. So we ask, therefore, what follows from the words of institution? In other words, what follows from the very nature of the supper? This follows. This follows. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord. Now, before we get ahead of ourselves here, notice the first word. Whoever. What is being said here applies to all who approach the table. Look carefully at the text. Whoever, in verse 27, is let a man or let a person, in verse 28, a designation which is generic and excludes no one. And in verse 29, we have, for anyone who eats and drinks. So whatever warnings are about to be administered, they apply to any and to all who eat and drink at that table None are excluded. There are no exceptions. So what is anyone or whoever or a person told here? Here's what we're told. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty, liable for the body and blood of the Lord. That, beloved, is terrifying stuff. This is a dreadful warning passage. Is it not remarkable that in the context of the supper, you get perhaps the most ferocious threat of divine judgment in the New Testament? This is a divine deterrent against sacrilege against profaning the holy, against incurring, get this, the guilt of the crucifixion itself, Paul says. God will not, Calvin says, allow this mystery to be desecrated without punishing it. That's Calvin. Yes, the meal is given for our comfort and joy. But make no mistake, so holy And sacred. So unbreakable is the relationship between these signs and Christ's own body and blood that God Himself, as judge, protects the integrity of that table. Because the flesh and blood of Christ are really present in the sacrament, because those are not just empty symbols, you can hear in a unique way 
in a way that you can't even do with the preaching. You can hear in a unique way, publicly profane Christ's very body and blood. How? By eating or drinking, Paul says, in an unworthy manner. It's a general term. It's meant to be general. As we've seen, it can't be narrowed down to the Corinthian abuses. <laughs> there are varying degrees of unworthiness. The Corinthian way of being unworthy is only one way of being unworthy. <laughs> Think about what Paul means when he says, or the apostles when they say, you are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Or you are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord who called you. It means to walk in a way that corresponds to the majesty and the dignity and the glory of the one who summons you. In the same way, you are to eat here in a manner worthy of the majesty of what's happening at the table. Right? Traditionally, the church has seen ignorance as a form of unworthiness or irreverence or nonchalance. How can there be nonchalance in the presence of the broken body and blood of Jesus Christ? Right? This is not just common bread. This is not just any other meal. This is not the place for cavalierness. This is the foot of the cross. Conduct yourself here as you would there. Living as a baptized person in a state of rebellion or unrepentance is also partaking in an unworthy manner because it makes a mockery of the fact that the table is for those who repent and believe the gospel. It is medicine, nourishment, to be sure, for repentant, broken, humble people who long to be healed, who long to be liberated from their sins. The table doesn't work by magic. It works by faith, and repentance and faith are inseparable. So we might ask, what must one do to not incur this guilt, to not eat in an unworthy manner? Well, the answer begins to unfold in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. First notice, again, every word here matters, right? Notice the then and the so. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat. Right? The then reinforces the need for self-examination, knowing that one can become guilty of the body and blood here. Let a person examine himself then, and so, as one who has undergone self-examination, so eat and drink. Let a person, anyone, whoever, do this. There are to be no people at the supper eating and drinking who have not first undergone searching self-examination. Right? The supper is a kind of condensed Version, a kind of distillation of the Christian life. And self-examination, tending to our consciences, is essential to Christian well-being. Right? Paul says in Galatians 6 that each one is to test his own work. You're to test yourselves, test your own work. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. 
Well, that doesn't seem very pastoral. Examine yourselves. Paul Paul does not presume the Corinthians are in the faith just because they're in the covenant. Examine yourselves, he says, to see if you're in the faith. And then he goes on and says this. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So not only does does the New Testament call us to self-examination, it assumes you can fail the test. Self-examination. Done rigorously, done searchingly, done with skill, done in the light of the commandments of the holy God, and done under the mercy and grace of the gospel. Because this is not a new law. That's a canard. This is not a new law. Done, if you will, at the foot of the cross. Self-examination done before the body and blood of the Lord. Christian self-examination is inseparable from Christian growth and nurture. Which is why it's eminently fitting, indeed required at the table, for the table is for your growth and your nurture, your renewal, your judgment onto new obedience. Joyful new obedience. And this cannot be farmed out. No one can do this for another. Let a person examine himself and so eat. Right? Baptism is done to you. Here, you publicly affirm your baptismal covenant with God. Now, let's be clear. It's not that perfect faith or flawless repentance are called for. That's also a canard. But nonetheless, faith and repentance, however imperfect, are required. Self-examination is absolutely required here. It's part of the gospel. Examine yourself. The second point here is discern. So here... We can zero in a little bit, like more precisely on what what does he mean by self-examination? Or what does self-examination result in? Well, it leads to, self-examination leads to what Paul calls discerning the body. So let's tease this out. Discerning here is of the same word group as the word for judgment. It's a word which occurs five times. The root word for judgment occurs five times in this short passage on the supper. It means to to judge or to evaluate the body. Now, getting this right is critical, right? Because anyone, anyone who does not engage in this discerning eats and drinks judgment on themselves. Again, they're guilty of treating the very body and blood of the Lord as if it were common, as if it were a thing that requires no holy evaluating or discerning. And by body here, Paul means that body displayed on that table. It's just shorthand for body and blood. I want to spend a minute on this because... Some take this to mean that to discern the body means to discern the body of Christ, the church. So I just want to spend a minute on this. The church, the church is never called 
the blood of Christ. And the whole passage is about body and blood, bread and cup, eating and drinking. So look at verse 29. Take a look at it. Look at the order. It goes like this. Eat, drink, discern the body, eat, drink. You see that pattern? Eat, drink, discern the body, eat, drink. So while body could theoretically be a metaphor of the church, we are never said to eat and drink the church. We eat and drink that body, Christ's body and blood. So body here is just shorthand for body and blood. We know that from the context, right? Remember, it's not the church which is being profaned in the passage. The guilt concerns the body and blood of our Lord. So first and foremost, that is what we are to discern. More importantly, one cannot discern. You know, that is properly judge or evaluate this body, right? The congregation, this body, the body of Christ without discerning that body and blood. It is that broken body which creates this body. So the two are related. Jesus is never without his church. I'm fine with saying there's a secondary reference to the church here. But first and foremost, we discern what is displayed there. And what's displayed there? Of course, it's Jesus' death for our sake, the death of Christ, the death of the incarnate second person of the Holy Trinity, his broken body, his shed blood for our sins. And by discerning that, and only by discerning that, we also can discern this, the body of Christ, the church. Of course, when we speak about discerning the body, the body of Christ, the church, we don't mean that we're just recognizing that this is the church. What we mean is that in light of the cross, we discern the radical love that the new commandment calls us to. The kind of love toward our brothers and sisters that Jesus has demonstrated. So when we discern what Christ has done for us, we discern our obligations, our duties, our debts to the brethren. All that God has done is discerned there. And discerning that, we discern the essence of our Christian duties to the body of Christ. And anyone, anyone, who eats and drinks without this discernment, this judgment, eats and drinks judgment on themselves. One does not need to be sophisticated. This is not about passing a complicated theological exam. But everyone who eats is called to examine and discern, to see, to recognize, to grasp the basic significance of the body and blood there, the death of the Lord. And the implications of that body for this body. This is beautifully captured. I'm always recommending the Valley of Vision, that collection of Puritan prayers. They have a prayer on the Lord's Supper. And here is a chunk, just an excerpt of that prayer. By thy spirit, enliven my faith rightly to discern. So they're, they're using the language of our text. By the Spirit, enlighten my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior. Right? It's one thing to say, yeah, it's Jesus' body and blood. It's another thing to spiritually apprehend Christ at the table. And discernment includes apprehending him there. 
The prayer goes on to say, when I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death, may I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours. I presented myself an offering to expiate your sin. I shed my blood to blot out your guilt. I opened my side to make you clean. I endured your curses to set you free. I bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may I rightly grasp the breadth and the length of this design. And then notice this language. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink, testify before all men that I do for myself, gladly, in faith, reverence, and love, receive my Lord to be my life, strength, nourishment, joy, and delight. That's discerning the body. Self-examination is inward and internal. Discernment is outward and objective. Both are required in the passage. Which brings me to the third point here. Judgment. Verse 31. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Again, to judge oneself here is the same root word as discern. What was earlier called examining oneself is here called discerning oneself. Self-examination then entails self-judgment. Notice that, right? Self-examination will entail self-criticism, self-judgment. That's what it means to have a conscience. Consciences accuse or consciences acquit. Consciences need to be tamed by the blood of Christ. And if we do this, if we engage in this self-judgment, the text says marvelously, we will not be judged by the Lord. And while the judgments in view in the passage are severe, and you can see they entail even physical death among the Corinthians, they are not eternal judgments. They are, verse 32 says, discipline of the Lord so that we might not be condemned. What an extraordinary statement. So notice this. The supper is a kind of mini final judgment in advance. Right? Where you can undergo fatherly discipline in anticipation of the day of judgment. The supper brings forward the eschaton. And in God's great mercy... You can judge yourself here. Look, if all of this judgment, examining, discerning language is sobering you, that's good. But you should see it as a sheer gift of mercy. It's God's way of saying that anticipates the final judgment. You can judge yourself here. You can discern yourself here. You can examine yourself before you have to stand there on that last day. And again, the supper is different than baptism here. Baptism threatens judgment later if one does not keep the covenant. At the supper, the judgment or the discipline is applied right here, right now, in real time by the risen Lord. The Corinthians are sick, ill, weak, dying. Again, again, to be clear, this is not exhaustive, perfect judgment that's in view. But rigorous self-judgment is required. We must, beloved, we must judge ourselves as sinners in need of that sacrifice, discerning that sacred flesh and blood for our salvation. For God stands active as our Father and our Judge, chastening us 
should we fail to judge ourselves there? Why does he do that? He does it so that we will escape condemnation and the wrath to come. That's what Paul says. Now, as I said at the open, this is a bracing text. It should be revisited by anyone who comes to the supper regularly. It intends to put the clean, enduring, holy fear of God into us. So that's a feast. But it is a sober feast. It's a solemn feast. It is joyful and full of gladness. And it's only the poverty of our theological imaginations that think we have to choose one of these two things. Because holy joy and holy self-examination are not at all incompatible. Right? Psalm 2 says to the kings of the earth to worship the Lord, to rejoice before the Lord with trembling. Joy and trembling are a sacred compound. I'm all for rejoicing at the table if it's trembling rejoicing. And I'm all for trembling if it's joyful trembling. But we can't have one without the other. That's a grotesque distortion. As one theologian put it, an exclusively celebratory Eucharist encourages the notion of an already achieved glory or immortality. The very thing 1 Corinthians 15 was written to rebut. Right? The Corinthians had what we call an over-realized eschatology. We're already kings with Jesus. We already reign. Right? 1 Corinthians 4, you can see them saying that. Paul quotes it back to them. Paul says, I wish you were kings. I wish you did reign. We were already raised. We already have the heavenly life. And Paul says, not so fast. Jesus himself was both, get this, a man acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows. You know what he was never called? A jovial joke teller. He was a man of sorrows, a man of the deepest kind of interior life in covenant with his father. And he was a man, according to Psalm 45, anointed with the oil of joy above all of his fellows. The grief-stricken man of sorrows is the most joyful man on the planet. And that mystery converges on that table. That mystery of joy and trembling. So while the passage might induce trembling, think of what a blessing it is for the Lord to give us the opportunity to judge ourselves here before the final judgment. It's like being given the final exam in advance. What a gift this is. But I'll tell you, you tear the heart of this gift away if you throw the discernment and the judgment and the self-examination part away. You're tearing the very heart of the Eucharist because the Eucharist anticipates the wedding supper of the Lamb. But in anticipating the wedding supper of the Lamb, it must anticipate the final judgment which precedes and allows one to enter into that wedding feast. Both things are anticipated by the Eucharist. The final judgment of all things and the wedding supper of the Lamb. You can't get to the supper without going through the judgment. So at this supper, you go through the judgment. Tear the judgment out, you got some disfigured thing left. You can bet, right, there's joy in heaven. Over repentance. 
And you can bet there's joy in heaven over self-examination and discernment and self-judgment here. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Right? It's the very fact that that one has already given himself to you that enables you and been judged in your place that enables you freely and openly to judge yourself at the foot of the cross. And I think, by the way, that our practice here of having one element, we're not going to do it tonight, (laughs) of having one element distributed in silence for a time of sober reflection and having another element accompanied by a a hymn of a triumph at the Lamb's High Feast, it helps bring out this combination of sober self-examination and holy joy. So let me finish. We heard in the Gospel lesson, I want to tie this to the Gospel how Jesus called us to love one another as he loved us. And with that command, he gave us that. What is he saying? He's saying this, that that table, that brokenness, that death, that outpoured life, that is what you are called to toward each other. Are you discerning that there? We discern that body so that we can discern this body. Discerning what was done there, we discern our obligations and our duties here. Here we say, then, we are living out our baptism. And thus the supper reminds us with great sobriety, great realism, that we will have to enter that passion if we are to love one another, this body, the way Christ calls us to. So when you look at the table, examine yourself. Discern that body. Judge yourself. Chiefly think this. This, this is how Jesus loved me. And then examine and judge and discern. This is what it means when he says love one another as I have loved you. Thanks be to God for the Holy Supper. The Supper is our judgment unto salvation. Amen.